the community aspect to these events, including like if you go to a race over a weekend or these festivals of gathering, time running in with music, there's so much more that's come up in the last, I would say five to 10 years, with, especially specific to like ultra and trail running. Ultra and trail running, talk about niche. Like when I got into this, there weren't a lot of people that looked like me that were doing the sport 22, 23 years ago. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a very well-known ultra runner. She's an ambassador for Patagonia and has been for quite some time. She has top finishes, including a second and two-fourths at the Western States 100, a win at the Vermont 100 endurance race. She's a two-time champion of UTMB. It's Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc. If you're not familiar, as uh, the youngest female to finish the Grand Slam of running, author of Running Your First Ultra, currently taking on running clients. So if you're looking to get into running or take your running to the next game, you're going to want to get in touch with her. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter at Chrissy Mail. Welcome to the show, Chrissy Mail. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Um, I know before we got going, which you know, you, the listener, are not privy to this part of our conversation. Uh, Chrissy's going to be hitting the road here soon. So just, just like, you know, cr- cramming everything in. So I appreciate uh, the time. I guess the big question is, are, are you headed out to a race? Are you headed out to train? Are, are you maybe taking a vacation? I know we're talking about being busy. Um, where, where are you headed out to? I get to head down to California and join the Patagonia team. We're headed to a Foxy Festival trail running weekend in Mammoth, California. So uh, representing Patagonia and getting to run with a bunch of great women and people that identify as women in the beautiful mountains of Mammoth. So I'm looking forward to that. So what does what does that consist of? I guess I am I kind of I have, I have a running background, endurance background, but I've never really dipped my toes into the ultra scene. So is is it just like Hey, we've got group runs all weekend. Is are we? Is there an actual race together? Like, what does the event kind of consist of? It's actually a first time event, and okay, headed so out to check it out. There's running for all levels, abilities, interests. So from um, technical to technical and long to um, any range of distances, long being I think upwards of 15 miles was mm-hmm. the longest run, and then one to two miles. So just really inclusive and open to. A, uh, exposing people to the community of trail running. So I, I'm looking forward to it. It sounds like an interesting event. It, it <clears throat> One thing I think is like, can be tough. And I've heard this from some people that um, kind of comment on the other show I do. It's just about running on the YouTube channel is like, you know, how do I find a group to run with or like, how do I get into running? And sometimes it's like, I feel like it's, it's just as easy as, 
head out your door and run. But also I acknowledge that like not everybody is, there are some people that are much more social than me. So I feel like maybe it's an easier jumping off point to go like, like there's a thing going on and like, let's go check it out and go for a run. And um, having the opportunity to, you know, be a part of an event um, is probably a pretty cool way to like both continue running and also get introduced to trail running in particular, which is not as widespread as like road running. Yeah, the, the community aspect to these events, including like if you go to a race over a weekend or these festivals of gathering, time running in with music, there's so much more that's come up in the last, I would say five to 10 years, with, especially specific to like ultra and trail running. Ultra and trail running, talk about niche. Like when I got into this, there weren't a lot of people that looked like me that were doing the sport 22, 23 years ago. Mm -hmm. And just to see the progression in the sport is really cool and the real the like focus on being in an inclusive inviting sport because it is it is a pair of shoes um and shoes can be super expensive so there can be some limiting factors um access is another one sometimes if you don't live right in the mountains what i'm lucky to do up here in bellingham washington access can be a limiting factor so having these events that gather people in um special places whether they're races or festivals, that's way more common now. And then trying to have these opportunities where scholarships are available, um, inviting people um, to make it be more representative. It's it's cool to see the sport continue to grow and like expand where, um, like I said, not a lot of people that looked even like me 22 years ago. What, you know, I've, I've had a kind of a spate of ultra runners this season that I've talked to and which not to uh, downgrade this town because it's a wonderful place I've, I've been there but it seems like everybody I talked to was like I live in Boulder I live in Boulder I live in Boulder because there's such great trail access but I'm also at the same time I go like aren't there trails elsewhere in the U.S. why you know why is it because of the altitude is like you know what's the history behind like why is boulder becomes such a mecca i guess for the sport um because it seems like and maybe this is the introvert in me i go like is it part of the allure of trail running like i'll say communing with nature for lack of a better term but just like being out and experiencing the trail and maybe not being where everybody else is um if i'm understanding your question correctly like that like Boulder is the main hub. And I would actually push back and say, there are a lot of amazing hubs in the sport. And it used to be um, just pretty focused on the West. Like it would be very central or like the, folk, the hub of trail running was like Boulder or Seattle and um, their Ashland, Oregon became one when Hal Kerner opened his shop down there. And of course, Auburn, California with Western States, where now there's like, back east, uh, east, the eastern seaboard, Midwest, like there's hubs popping up all over and it's both out of interest and like realizing accessibility within some of these locations. It's, it's I get more and more emails from places that I didn't um, even communicate with. When I first got into sport in the early 2000s, a lot of our, I was a Montreal athlete coordinator, Montreal is a footwear brand and all of our athletes were based on the 
West Coast essentially, and then we'd have a few speckled here and there in the Midwest and the Eastern Seaboard. And now there's events popping up, communities. Um, Gina Lucrezzi started a organization called Trail Sisters, and Trail Sisters has running communities all over the states, even a few international now. So just, yeah, again, back to that growth of the sport and how access for a lot of people is becoming, um, thankfully, more prevalent. I guess maybe one of my curiosities is like, where do people come from? And I don't necessarily miss, mean geographically, but like, where, why do people get into ultra specifically? You know, because you think about, when I think about like the barrier to entry, um, I would consider it pretty high in that it takes a fair amount of time. You're often gonna have to travel much like triathlon, there's there's a barrier to entry in terms of, as you mentioned, like accessibility. Um, but, you know, the sport is clearly seeing good growth right now. So do you have any kind of sense of like where or why people are coming to the sport specifically? My um, guess is there's a lot like <laughs> way back when I got into the sport, there wasn't like YouTube or social media or mm -hmm. these videos, these beautifully produced running videos. The first running videos, especially of trails, were so shaky and bouncy. And that's that was even like five, 10 years into the sport for myself. So there's like the view, like the ability to view it, even if you haven't tried it, is way higher. Like the access point before was this black and white magazine called Ultra Running Magazine, period. And now there's so many points of entry just for visual. And then um, like having communities popping up all over, there's, I mean, the best way in, in my opinion, is having someone say, hey, you should come join me for a run. And that's how I was invited into the community because you learn so much from the people that you get to surround yourself with. And that, that community just really sucked me in on many levels. One, the physical aspect, I loved where my legs were able to take me and two, this like communal adventure of being out in these beautiful spaces and then sharing stories of what happens while you're out there. Um, I just, I think those, because those stories are communicated on a much broader level anymore, from podcasts to social media to videos, movie festivals, there's so many points that you could kind of learn about it. And then if you have that one person that invites you out for a run, um, it seems like an easy, easier access. And then I understand that the, the gear can be expensive. I just compared to other sports that have like dive suits or bicycles or fancy helmets or, you know, climbing gear, whatever. There's, there's a lot less necessary to get going. It can get expensive, but as a starting point, like anybody can go run a mile and see if they like it. You don't have to have a harness or a bicycle or something to see if you like it. You can just, hopefully a pair of shoes would be accessible and, and try it out. That was always my, not always, but like that was one of my big complaints about triathlon is the, the bigger barrier to entry because the bikes get so expensive so quickly. Um, and not that they have to be expensive because you can take anything out, but just getting people into that sport is, is tough because of just the laundry list of equipment that's required. And I, even though I enjoyed my time in the sport, I often would go back to being like, 
oh, I wish I could just go to a race and bring my shoes and have my like race jersey and my shorts and like I'm good, you know, like let's you know, you got your chafe bomb and you got extra little things, but like it's not this whole huge pack of stuff you've got to lug with you. Um, I think about, I guess when I think about running or I think about ultras, again, I haven't been in the community, so I, I don't have firsthand experience. Um, but to me, it, it almost has this like, I guess I'll say mystique of like, almost like untouched wilderness kind of idea. Like when a sport's very young, it's, as you mentioned, niche. Um, you often have very quirky individuals. Uh, I mean that in an endearing way. And just like, there's a certain like vibe to the sport. You've been in the sport for, you know, a number of, of years now. Does it still maintain the same feeling ethos vibe that it had when you got into it or, or do you feel it changing? Mm. I think there's pockets of both. Um, I'm the race director of the Chuckanut 50K here mm. in Bellingham. This was my 20th year as race director. And when I took over the event in 2003, I had friends from high school that came out and like wrote down everybody's time. I remember registration was me delivering stacks of entry forms to the local running stores between Seattle and Bellingham. And then those being mailed into me with a $13 check and me having to type them all up into an Excel spreadsheet. So I'd have the list, the starters list of runners. I mean, ultra signup didn't even exist when I took over the checking at 50k and the evolution of the sport to have chip timing and online registration and my mom used to make the food that we would serve at the finish line and now we have food trucks like there's so much like shift and change but it's still there's like the the local community vibe of the checking at 50k that it's I think because the I partner with Kevin Douglas and Tyler Cooley and we all have the, the three of us have this like passion for the event that and the community close to it like before I moved back to Bellingham I actually lived in Boulder for a while so I was a part of the Boulder running community for uh four years but when I before I even moved back to Bellingham people didn't know who the race director of the Chuckin at 50k was they just knew that that was the local 50k and so the local community support, the running community support, the uh, national and international athletes that come to attend to it all get to feel that. So, I mean, there's somewhat of an old school vibe to it while still having like modern, modern day um, add-ons, add I guess, if you will. And I think you can feel that around the country in, in, in events, whether they're still having you handwrite your finish time when you cross the finish line, or they've got, you know, full-blown uh, live tracking and, you know, cameras following the elites along the course. Like the sport has grown a ton and has a, a lot of these additions, and yet there's still opportunities to find like a local fat ass that people aren't even tracking their times. They just come together to have an event. So it, I want to back up a little bit. If I'm doing my math right, you're getting into ultras and taking over the Chuckin' at 50K around the same time. Is that, is that accurate? I did. I ran the Chuckin' at 50K as my first ultra in 2000. 
and Doug McKeever and Richard West were the race directors at that time. In 2002, they decided that that was their last year and that was their 10th year as race directors and nobody took it on. So at 24 years old with my heart wide open to the sport, I just couldn't let my first ultra go away. And so I took it on as race director in 2003, unknowingly now like looking back like 20 years of my life has been dedicated to putting on that event the nice thing is is it's like a pretty concentrated effort from like say November through April it's always the third Wednesday excuse me the third Saturday in March so there's some wrap up after and then there's this long you know extended break that there's plenty of other things that fill my calendar um, and then I can come back refreshed and go for it again so who knows how long I'll do it I mean, you seem to be on a roll so far. I, it, I, I mean, I saw that you were the race director for it, but I, I guess I hadn't realized you had been doing it for quite such a long time. And it seems like, do you think it was easier to take on because you didn't, maybe, I'm putting words in your mouth, so please correct me. Did it seem like maybe it was easier to take on because you didn't really know what you were getting into at that time? I'm just thinking about my own like early 20s and being like, sure, I'll do it. Like, you just don't know yet like what's difficult so you go ah like sure i'll try it out why not mm -hmm. yeah fair enough i i i really still feel like the driving force was i really didn't want the event to go away okay that's what i wanted then i was the one to step in and do it so that was definitely the instigating driving force but i relate to what you're saying because i've been offered other events to take over and race direct and i don't this is i'm a one one time a year i'm good for that it's it seems like it would be um difficult especially as you mentioned like there's kind of that intense effort for several months to start stacking those on top of each other or overlapping to try to get it going unless you had some kind of extra help mm -hmm. yeah and i've got a great team i love working with tyler and kevin we've worked together for six years now on the event so they've got full ownership of each of their respective parts and we, we collaborate weekly on a call um we had to take a two-year um i guess break from the in-person we actually worked off probably even harder trying to piece together things that we could during the pandemic to keep the event just present and offer to the community that we've created around chunk of something um, but I'll be the first to admit it's nothing like the in-person. Like I, I definitely thrive in gathering people and really struggled with trying to do a, a virtual anything. That's just not where my wheelhouse has been. I, I'm, a, I'm a total extrovert and love the energy that happens when you pull people together and creating a vibe and a space and an open canvas for whatever will come that day. So putting all the things in place with the hands up of like what is going to happen by providing food trucks and a 50k course and a grand finish line and an announcer and music what happens like what stories come out of like putting those pillars in place for the energy to flow around it's really i, I love restricting that way but again the in-person is where I'm, be I'm better at there's people that do the virtual stuff way better than i <laughs> i could do yeah, no worries. Um, that doesn't kind of lead me to want to ask you about, um, and I ask many of the ultra runners about this is like, I'll say work-life balance, but work is kind of like work and running. Um, is there balance? Does it matter? Like, what does your day, week, 
that kind of thing look like? Hmm. Uh, in terms of what keeps me busy or like, or just like, how does your week unfold? You got, you know, if you're still, you're training for stuff or you're training people or you're doing the race structure thing, like how do you keep it all under wraps? I guess. Mm. Oh, I'd say it like fluctuates. Um, sometimes it's balance in the extremes. So like, like moving fast and feel like getting lots done in a short amount of time, like this spring was for me. And then, um, actually forced injury kind of took me down for some months, but the <laughs> exact opposite extreme of like chill, settling, calming my nervous system. So I prefer to not live in those extremes. Sometimes just the way I've set up life, kind of the spring it needed to go that way. I bought a house, launched a book and put on the checking at 50K all within two weeks. So the two, almost three months leading up to that were pretty hectic knowing that that was all going to culminate at the same time. And then a week after, two weeks after that, I left and hiked on the Arizona trail. I did uh, I joined two gr uh, great girlfriends. We did an interview on Ginger Runner Live that was a lot of fun to rehash it. But we did the first 200 miles um, from the Mexico border. We hiked 200 miles north on the Arizona Trail. And I came home from that April 15th. So not even a month after Chukana and less than two months after moving into this house. And um, had some more stress a little like around the house when I got back and my back went out. And it's like, I can't help but think that it was the culmination of all those things. A lot of people are like, what, were you on a ladder or did you do you know, one motion? And it's, I think our lives and our bodies are so, our bodies show a lot of what's going on in our lives. And I pushed the envelope knowingly and then got pushed a little bit further and my back shut me down. So that tipped the scales and threw the balance in another direction. So I guess to answer your question, none of my days or weeks look the same. There's a lot of different buckets, I think, is the way I describe what some people might call their career. My, my existence is in coaching and restricting and writing and my personal life and all those things at any given point I'm putting more energy into and therefore getting um, resources in and out of. And those, like, they're kind of like a... a, a pie chart where the wedges are always changing in terms of how much is going in into each. So like I said before with Chuckanut, November to uh, mid-April, there's a lot in the Chuckanut wedge of pie, but then May through November, that pie can, goes pretty slim and the other aspects of life fill in. So I, I like it that way. I, I'm kind of a busy body, a busy brain, and it helps for me to have that variety. Well, since, since you have a, I'll call it a variable schedule, um, how do you, I guess, one, how do you get things, everything done? But just beyond that, um, how do you not push the envelope? Because like you said, you, you kind of knowingly push the envelope and kind of end up in a place where, you know, you were hurt a little bit. Um, I can absolutely understand that ethos. And being endurance athletes, I think sometimes we have a tendency to go too hard. And it's something I've had to learn over the years about like when to back off. So I, I guess I'm curious about your approach to balancing load, um, whether you want to talk about that in terms of, you know, the metaphor of mileage or whether it's, you know, some other kind of verbiage, but just 
the, the stress of life, like how do you, how do you manage that load so that you don't, you know, end up over the, the edge of the cliff? Mm, well, and like the example, I guess I just gave, I'm not always <laughs> doing so are able to fully manage it. Um, cause I think the thing is there is I, I was fi fine. I was up to a point I was doing all right up to, you know, getting back from the trail, but then there's always life, life throws another thing at you. And I think the big thing I consistently am trying to learn is how to have a little bit more of a cushion and not be pushed right up against the edge. Some tools that have become very helpful in the last five years are meditation being a big one. And I think I've always had a meditative state with my running, but being more intentional with a sitting practice and that comes and goes. Uh, I'm not like a daily 30 minute meditator, but I have it as a, as a tool that I, I reference and go back to and I can tell when I haven't been using that like stillness to help ground myself. Um, something else I've found really helpful is being really aware of where I'm at in my, uh, as a female in my menstrual cycle and how my hormones might be impacting what's going on. And that's something that I was not taught as a kid. You just like dealt with this monthly thing. There's so much happening for women on a daily basis that needs to be accounted for. And the more awareness we can draw around that really helps balance our, at least bring awareness to our energy levels. Like if you're feeling, I call it cross-eyed tired and you can relate it to what day in the cycle, just know that you don't push yourself or schedule an extra you know, social event that night. So um, I'd say like awareness and uh, meditation, I guess, which awareness comes through great meditation. Um, those are some key tricks that have I say come into my life in the last like five, five, 10 years that have been really helpful. Um, as you mentioned it, it made me think about it. So you're talking about kind of seeing where you are um, on your menstrual cycle. It, it reminded me of a conversation I had with uh, Dr. Chris Minson, who's a professor at the University of Oregon. And he spends a lot of his time basically trying to figure out specifically like uh, sports adaptations for female athletes because there's so there's such a large gap in research literature that has to per, that pertains specifically to these adaptations that like women go through versus men and what he talked about uh, it's episode 130 for anybody who wants to check it out um, he talked about just like the kind of old school thinking is just to treat women like small men which isn't accurate no, um, no. but it's also like I, I think in again for you listening check out the conversation because my memory is foggy that's why we have nice recordings um, but I think he I remember him mentioning um, that like yes there is clearly like some effect but it also isn't like oh, women are fragile because, you know, they have a period. Like, it's not that situation. It's just trying to determine um, are there, like, optimal times for particular loads and recovery and all that kind of thing. So um, hopefully we get more and more, you know, info out of him. But I think on a personal level, you're probably, you know, on the right, right path instead of trying to take that kind of I want to say old school approach because everybody is, has their own, you know, rhythm. 
Mm -hmm. Totally. And men do too. There's just not this monthly marker that right. men have to reference as well as uh, a menstruating female and not all females menstruate. So there's right. different aspects and factors. I'll go back and listen to that one. I'm a big advocate or I've, I've gained my most helpful information from Dr. Stacey Sims. She has an institute in New Zealand and her co-writer, Celine Yeager, um, they have two books out now. The second one just came out roar and next level and those have been those and then the flurry of podcasts that are coming around that and other readings and the research that they reference have all been really helpful as i um try and figure out more about how the female athlete body changes and initially there weren't a lot of females doing huge endurance efforts and more importantly there was very very like dr chris was saying there's very little research being done on women because they're they are so variable throughout the month, it's hard to study. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think that was one of like one of the things, if I remember, one of the things we talked about is like basically people would like the researchers originally would go like because of the variability, we just want to go forget it. Like don't even worry about it. And I, I can't remember what he does or if he does anything specifically. I think he I mean, makes notations in his research, but I, I don't think he tries to like hyper control for like, it's always like the 15th day of, uh, you know, this particular athlete cycle that we do testing. I don't think he goes to, to that length. Um, I think I remember him saying that like, it, it's important to take the data about where the athlete is, but that that hyper control isn't necessary for the vast majority of what he's like studying. He's got, I wish you could see in person. He talked about, he has this like climate lab basically where he can crank the humidity up, crank the heat up, um, crank it down, whatever, and test people under all kinds of different you know oh, cool. conditions. So I'll definitely go back and listen to that episode. Yeah. Maybe, I'm sure. Um, you could you could probably get it you could probably get into the lab just like i want to i want to try this like if you're getting ready for a hot human race you could probably be like come come run some i'll, I'll get in the lab run some stuff on me um i'm sure he probably knows who you are so that'd be fascinating <laughs> yeah um so i want to i do want to ask you a little bit about the book before we run out of time um running your first ultra uh, as listeners of podcast know, I'd like to read before I have guests on. Unfortunately, I did not have the opportunity to do that time uh, this time. But I, I want to ask you about why write the book. Um, mm. There's all kinds of books, so uh, just to play devil's advocate, I guess why write? You know, why add another book to all the books that we have? Um, and and what's kind of your approach to running your first ultra? Mm. It was actually a super cool opportunity. The publisher, Page Street Publishing, approached me in 2014, 13 or 14, 14, um, to write the first edition. And that was based on a blog. Remember when blogs were the big thing? I think they're coming back around, but I was writing a blog and they liked my style and they asked what kind of book I would like to write. And just to be approached by a publisher, I've learned from trying to write um, a second book is, is really, it's really hard to get published. So to have a publisher come to you, like don't pass up that opportunity. Um, and they had somebody that was supposed, was like on board to write basically the same training manual 
and they asked me if there was something else I would like to write. And I wrote back a pretty passionate email about why I was the author that should write training for your first ultra. One, because I coach, a, I coach, I was coaching athletes at the time and most of them were like just getting into ultras, um, putting on the check-in at 50K. It's, it's kind of known as a great first 50K because of the accessibility to town and uh, how many, like how much support we have and volunteers and everything. So I made this case for why I was the author to write it. And then I didn't hear from them for like three weeks or something. And then one point I got an email back saying, sometimes the stars align and the other author decided to opt out of her contract and it opened up the door for me to get to write it. And it was such a passion project. And I really drew on those early clients that I had been working with. At that point, I'd been coaching for five years and just lessons I'd learned through my own experiences and wanting to share in the book. Like, I mean, I, there was a lot of mishaps along the way from like chafing and the wrong clothing and nutrition and throwing up, like all the things that if I could write in a way that somebody wouldn't have to go through as many hardships to like fall in love with the sport, um, that was kind of the initial approach. And then in 2020, I was so surprised. I mean, the book had been out for five years at that point and how many people wrote amidst the pandemic that that book was really helping them to train, even though there wasn't a race to train for. And I wrote to the publisher and said, Hey, I'm just kind of baffled by the number of people I'm hearing from. And you got to think that if like one person writes you, there's at least three to five more that are kind of thinking the same thing. And I said, could we do some sort of supplemental piece to like add on to what's going on here? And then they came back and said, let's write the second edition. So I buckled down and wrote the second edition during kind of like, I guess that was ooh, like right after Christmas of 2020. So yeah, early 2021. And then the book released March of 2022. So, uh, and that was an opportunity to like update information. One of my favorite, like just little snippets was I, in their first edition had said, you know, as you're figuring out what your running pack to carry, make sure you have room for a phone, a GPS, a camera, all these things. And it's like, now only five years later, your phone is the thing that all does of all things. of that. Like one, like, but just in 2014, when I wrote the book, that wasn't the case. Like you needed all those things along with you. So I thought that was like getting to update the information uh, another big one was um, writing all the information together. In the first edition, I felt it was necessary to have a chapter just for women. And just like bringing up on this podcast, like things that I deal with as a female with my menstrual cycle, I would have never done that. Like I wouldn't have talked openly about that on a, a some sort of interview or in an article. And so just knowing that, hey, we're all trail runners and we can all learn from the information. REDS is a very uh, relative energy deficiency syndrome is a mm -hmm. very relevant thing for anybody that's outputting and not putting enough calories or energy in. So if like a, any, any person should be able to read about what another person in the sport is going through. So putting the information throughout the book as opposed to feeling there had to be a separate chapter for women because we have these like specific or special needs. Like we're all humans, we're all doing the thing. Um, so those were kind of fun, like advances to do, to see through the book um, just five years later.
I'm like trying to be quick and fight. I tr- I've, I've lost her name. There was a, a former pro triathlete I talked to and she uh, is doing research on red. So I was like trying to find the episode mm-hmm. real quick. I, I, I've, I've, I've talked to so many people that all, all my names start to like go, get lost out of my brain, unfortunately. Where are you? There you are. Uh, Alex Coates, episode 111. She's a Canadian, uh, former Canadian pro triathlete, as well as her sister. Um, and they both went through um, bouts of reds. And, and so now she does research on it. And yeah, it's, it's a big, uh, big deal. I don't think it's like been addressed enough, but then it seems like there's a lot more people focusing on, you know, how do we avoid it? Number one, but then just the awareness that it is a potential problem, especially for um, competitive endurance athletes or endurance athletes in general, um, Mm -hmm. if you don't take steps to avoid it from the beginning. Um, and there's a lot of psychology that could potentially be wrapped up in it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chris, I don't want to run any out of time. So we'll, we'll go to my final question. If you watched all of Kyle's episode, um, you already know the question. But uh, for clarity's sake, I ask a single question to all guests for each season. And this season's question, which I'll ask you, is how do you celebrate your wins? Mm, yeah, I remember that for Kyle's and uh, his quick response that that was great Uh, how do I celebrate my wins like just acknowledging them I try let me think as it comes to I'm thinking of like my coaching clients and the people that I I get to work with on a pretty almost like daily basis definitely weekly some most of the time daily basis and how helping people see their wins is such a like a wonderful way of celebrating them a lot of times we skip over things because we don't think they're a big deal or we minimize them or so just the acknowledgement is huge um next level i like to send cards to people when they've done something close i'm a i'm a good postal service supporter um yeah and just yeah acknowledgement i think is is this is a really important important piece to celebrate your wins. PD has something to say about it too. That's what I <laughs> tell you how, how PD supports it or celebrates his wins. Yeah. Um, Chrissy, if people want to reach out, uh, get in touch, talk to you about coaching, any of that kind of stuff, where can they find you? Awesome. Thanks for that. Uh, my name, if you can spell it, you can find me. It's a funny last um, spelling m-o-e-h-l so chrissy mail everything chrissy mail at instagram and i'm not actually really on twitter i would just it it exists but i There's don't a lot of chucking up posts i think was what i found oh about. that might have been <laughs> yeah chucking up 50k chucking at 50 or checking at 50k is another way to um connect with some of the stuff i'm doing but my website's k-r-i-s-s-y-m-o-e-h-l.com and everything's on there Thanks. Awesome. Yeah, no, you can actually order a book directly from me and I can, um, I will sign it and mail it off personally. So that's kind of a fun, fun way for me to get the books out there. It's also available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and other major sellers. Yeah, but if you, if, if you might as well get a signed copy. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's fun for me to connect to people because typically then I'll also get to hear back of how their first ultra went. And those, those are the best stories. They always seem to come on the days I need them the most too. Mm -hmm. Chrissy, thanks for hanging out. Awesome. Thank you so much for the time.